good to uh, good to be here this morning. Um, to so to get us started, <clears throat> I want you to imagine in your mind um, an exploring party of um, Chinese archaeologists, and they're digging through the ruins of of New York or Philadelphia or Chicago um, <clears throat> in the year 4001. Remember, we're 2020. This is way in the future, 4001. And, um, and, uh, they, and they find in the cornerstone a, a picture of an elephant and a tiger. But there's no words of explanation about what this is all about. And so a, a debate begins. Uh, as to the significance of the picture. Uh, one learned professor who belongs to the literal school of interpretation puts forward the position uh, that the picture is proof that former theories about the late 20th century North America having been a well-settled urban nation were obviously incorrect. Obviously, it must have been a country with, with jungles and, and wild animals. The tigers and elephants abounded, which is proved by the picture. Uh, another scholar who belongs to a more historical school of thought disagrees. No, no. He says that the evidence of North America as a well-settled urban nation was, is too strong to be set aside on the strength of this single picture. Rather, it shows, um, uh, shows us the importance of an ancient institution called circuses, which apparently was very popular entertainment um, uh, among the Americans. And this picture must be uh, something about a, a common circus scene. But yet another man stands and explains the picture in another fashion. He takes a symbolic interpretation of the picture. The picture, he averts, is something called a political cartoon. And it represents the political battles that were apparently raging in the early 1920s between the Republican and Democratic parties. Now, the last in, uh, interpretation was actually the correct one. But that might not have been evident to everyone in 4001. So today I begin a study on the book of Revelation. And I use that illustration because Revelation is a book of pictures from long ago. And we look at them and we, we wonder... And as in my story of the Chinese scholars and the cartoon, there are numerous ways that people have understood this book of the Bible. There is, for example, the historical school who believes that the bulk of Revelation uh, is uh, simply a chronological step-by-step -step outline of the course of church history from the first century down to uh, the current uh, state of affairs and the second coming. And then there's the futurist school, uh, which is like the literalist in my story, who believe that, that Revelation forecasts future things to come, and especially that fulfillment that will occur during a time of great crisis at the return of the Lord. Then there's also the preterist school of thought, which regards most or, or almost all of the book of Revelation to have actually already been fulfilled back in 70 A.D. or by the end of the Roman Empire. Now, probably there's a, some wisdom in all of those positions, but 
the most helpful and consistently sane understanding of the book of Revelation, and the one I'll be following is known as idealism or progressive parallelism. And it understands that Revelation uh, is uh, actually best understood, uh, a book of pictures. Uh, it cannot possibly be understood altogether literally, but is in large part a, a figurative series of principles that are applicable in every age. That we must think of the book of Revelation as largely depicting principles of a great ongoing spiritual war rather than a specific one-time historical event. Uh, principles that are continuously reoccurring throughout the church age. Through them, God was speaking to the church back in the first century, and through them, God is speaking to us uh, today as, as well. Now, Revelation is also a book of sevens. And over and over again, uh, you'll find the number seven when you read through the Bible. And we recognize that throughout Scripture, from Genesis 1, where God created the earth in seven days and then rested, his work being completed, right on through the book of Revelation, seven is a number of completion. The churches had seven children, and that was enough. <laughs> Our work was complete. <laughs> um, so... Um, a number of completion, and we read so here in the book of Revelation about uh, seven churches and seven lampstands and seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls of wrath. More importantly, we discover that the entire book is separated into seven sections, each of, uh, of which uh, these seven uh, parallel sections repeatedly uh, spanning essentially the same uh, ground, but from a different perspective. In other words, what we see as we read through the book is not a chronological step-by-step time-bound description of the future, where you have to sort of find out where you are on the timeline, but rather uh, a, um, a description of the experiences of the Church of Jesus Christ from the time of Jesus' first coming uh, at the, at the, as, the, as the Christ child, uh, to his second coming as the risen Lord to judge the nations, shown to us in seven uh, parallel sections, but all of them moving, uh, progressing toward a climactic ultimate end depicted in chapters 21 and 22. For example, uh, <clears throat> this is particularly clear in uh, chapter 12 uh, through 14, which is the fourth of the seven sections. There we have this clear reference to the birth of Christ, the man-child, who was then persecuted by the dragon, who is Satan, and his helpers who, who are seeking to destroy or, or devour him. But uh, the, the man-child is caught up after his birth uh, up into heaven to his throne and the section ends with a stirring description of the second coming with the man-child, the son of man, returning to, returning to judge the earth from the first advent to the second. Jesus' birth to his return. And this same pattern is basically repeated throughout the entire book in seven sections. Some more clear than others. Uh, some focusing more on one period than another. But all moving toward this dramatic conclusion. So the purpose of the book of Revelation 
is not to scintillate us or, or make movies out of, but <clears throat> to um, encourage um, the Church of Christ to impress upon us the fact that Christ is Lord and victor over the devil and his angels. That's the message of encouragement that was so much needed in the church of the uh, early church and is much needed today as we receive it. William Hendrickson, one of the commentators to which I shall frequently uh, uh, refer, says this. He says, the theme of the book is stated most gloriously and completely in these words. Chapter 17, verse 14. These will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are called, chosen, and faithful. Amen. Well, that's actually a pretty good summary of the entire book of Revelation. The devil and his angels and his people here on earth are continually at war with Jesus, the Lamb, and his people, his church. But he will overcome. He is overcoming. And as his called and chosen faithful people, we are overcoming and we will overcome completely and definitively in a day to come. Well, all of that by way of <coughs> excuse me, introduction. So this morning we're going to look at uh, Revelation chapter 1. And I'd like to ask you if you're able to pick up your Bible or use the Pew Bible, page 1027, I believe, uh, or 28. The very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1. And turn to the first chapter and keep it open on your laps because... Uh, I'm going to be reading through the sections as we go. I'm not going to read through the entire uh, portion, but uh, through the sections uh, as we go. And I'm going to begin with just the first um, eight verses. Revelation uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show to his servants the things that soon must take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it. For the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was 
and who is to come, the Almighty. All right. So I want to focus particularly on 9 to 20, verses 9 to 20, in a few minutes, but, and we'll read them. But let me briefly make some observations about these introductory eight verses. Revelation was written by the Apostle John, somewhere between 69 and 96 A.D., and it follows the manner of many of the epistles, beginning, uh, uh, beginning with verse 4, but it starts off with, uh, somewhat differently with this prologue in verses 1 to 3. And the prologue teaches us that this book should be properly called the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, a revelation is an uncovering of something or a revealing of something that previously had been hidden. Uh, and in this case, it's the unveiling of the plan of God for his church. And that's interesting. What soon must take place, verse 1. Well, God the Father gives this revelation to Jesus Christ the Son, who in turn reveals it or makes it known through an angel and through visions to the Apostle John, who writes it down. So, you see how it works. The Father gives this to the Son. It's his revelation to the Son. And the Son passes it on to John, who's to write it all down. And notice something very special. Uh, This is the only book of the Bible that comes with a very specific promise of blessing. Now, we know we're blessed when we read God's word, but this one actually tells us that. Uh, It says, um, to me and to you who read it and take it to heart, verse 3, blessed, blessed, is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keeps these things which are written in it, for the time is near. So we should take that seriously. Uh, God wants to bless us through the reading and hearing of of the word. That's great. (laughs) Well, um, in verses 4 and 5a, we have then the classic salutation. John greets the seven churches of Asia to whom the letter is to be sent. But remember, seven is a number of completion. Just one indication that this letter is not just for those seven churches, but for all the churches of, of God, right down uh, to, to this present age, right down to Faith O.P. Salem, Oregon. And, uh, well, then Christ is identified as um, <clears throat> the firstborn from the dead. His resurrection from the dead on Easter is important to us, isn't it? It guarantees that you and I will be resurrected just as Christ was one day. Um, uh, but first, uh, furthermore, he is uh, indicated or, or identified in these verses as the ruler over the kings of the earth. The ruler. Presidents. There aren't any presidents here. Premiers. Any premiers? No. Dictators, maybe. <laughs> Take note. Take note. But finally, there is uh, this section in verses 5b to 8, which I'm calling the, um, uh, the adoration or doxology. Surely one of the most beautiful passages uh, in the Bible. And, and really... Uh, very, very gripping um, to him who has loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a, a kingdom and priests to serve our God and Father to him be glory and dominion uh, forever and ever. Uh, amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the 
tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. Wow. That's, um, that's an amazing... He, Jesus identified... This is, the, this is our testimony as Christians. He has freed us from our sins by the, his blood shed on the cross and called us apart. We're a people who are called apart from the world to serve God. And Jesus identifies himself as the Alpha and the Omega, who was and who is, and who is to come, the Almighty. <clears throat> the text speaks of his return, too, where every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, verse 7. In other words, even the, uh, back, uh, the, the soldier who, who pierced him with his, with his spear, even he, at that moment, will see Christ. This is wild stuff and, and uh, glorious um, well, let's turn to uh, the vision. Uh, my second uh, major point. We've had some, re- some, some introduction. Uh, in the remaining uh, minutes, I want to focus on verses 9 to 20, where John speaks of this vision of Christ, the returning king. And in these verses, we have a picture of Christ that God wants us, uh, wants to fix our minds upon. He wants us to see and think of Christ in this manner. So let's pick up um, with verse 9 and read through 17. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice of, uh, that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs uh, on his head were white, like, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flames, a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Well, we'll stop there. Oh, maybe I should read 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Well, John, uh, looking at his appearance, um, John is um, imprisoned in a Roman penal settlement uh, on the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. And he's not there because of criminal activity. He's there because of his bold witness for the Lord Jesus and, and, and for his church. That's what gets him in that place. 
and, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, verse 10, he has this vision, uh, this experience. He sees the resurrected Christ in overwhelming glory. Jesus is identified in verse 13 with a famous messianic description, the Son of Man, which can be found in Daniel 7 and Ezekiel 1. It was Jesus' favorite a description of himself. He loved to speak of himself as the Son of Man. And, and then Jesus, I mean, John gives us this beautiful description, all of which points to the power and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. His power and his authority. Now, what does Jesus look like in your mind's eye? Um, is he like one of those pictures we see perhaps injudiciously printed in children's storybooks, a, a friendly, mild-mannered <clears throat> man with a trim brown beard. I've noticed the beard has gotten a little shorter in most recent renderings. And usually surrounded by smiling children gathered around him. Now, certainly Jesus loved children and must have attracted them very easily. The, the adults kind of often would draw away, but the children, they were all over him. Um, but, but in giving this account in John's Revelation we need to conclude that God wants us to think of Jesus in another way as well. Uh, let me challenge you to imagine Jesus as he's revealed to us in this text uh, to John as powerful and authoritative. His voice, <clears throat> described in verse 10, as a loud trumpet. And again, in verse 15, uh, like the, something of the sound of of, of, of many waters or the sound of the roar of rushing waters. His voice thundered like, like la uh, waves crashing down on the shore. Uh, that's the way one translation or paraphrase gives it. And I think that may be close to what, what uh, John is trying to say. Um, <clears throat> if, you're, if you've ever stood on, on, on the seashore when the waves are really big after a huge storm... And they're crashing onto the shore. You can hear nothing else. There is no competition whatsoever. It completely fills your ears and drowns out everything else. It demands your full attention. Even the crying of gulls and the calling of children to one another are blotted out at that moment. In other words, the voice of the glorified Christ was loud, but it was somehow absolutely commanding such that nothing else could be heard or given attention to whatsoever. When Jesus spoke, when Jesus speaks, there could be no distractions whatsoever. And he wears this magnificent, simple robe. Um, a, a long robe reaching down to his feet, meaning it was a priestly robe with a golden sash, all of which speaks of his exalted status and his purity and his wealth and his royal stature. It was a, a very simple, understated form of dress, just a robe. Uh, because our exalted Christ uh, it doesn't need elaborate clothing, doesn't need expensive jewels, doesn't need gorgeous robes or, or, or tailored suits to make a statement. His statement is himself. That alone is sufficient. The robe, well, the robe looks magnificent because he, God, the victorious son, 
the Holy One is wearing it. His hair and his, uh, and his head are described as white with wool, as white as snow, a description that speaks as Vern Poitras, Westminster Professor of New Testament Interpretation, puts it, um, uh, speaks of his purity and of the wisdom associated with age. A, a similar description is found in, in uh, Daniel 7, where Christ is referred to as the Ancient of Days. Um, our, our Lord speaks uh, in this a book, not with the wisdom of men, but with a perfected uh, wisdom of an eternal creator. And, and what about his eyes? Like blazing fire, we're told. Now, <clears throat> it's a common thing for theophanies, meaning descriptions of God in the Bible, to, to, to stretch and struggle and scratch for human words to express inhuman, indescribable spiritual reality. Eyes of blazing fire. What did John mean by that? What, what, was it, what are the eyes of God like? He, he struggles to find some way to somehow explain to us with what words he had at his command to give us some sense of what he saw. A burning, perhaps, penetrating, seeing in a single glance everything from beginning to end. In one glance, he sees it all just like that, from beginning to end. Um, uh, every secret, every hidden thing. A- and his feet. His feet are like fine brass, bronze, glowing as if a liquid in a, in a furnace. His face was like the sun in all of its brilliance. You can't look at the sun. It's too much. A- and out of his mouth, this double-edged sword. I mean, we could go on at great length talking about these various images. It's overwhelming. Our Lord has described to us by a first-hand witness who saw him as absolutely powerful, absolutely pure and majestic and commanding. It's Jesus God come in judgment to rule the world and his church. And, and, and he has words for the church. And we jolly well better listen to them. Uh, we'll be looking at the first of them, uh, the first church next uh, Lord's Day evening, and then uh, on evenings thereafter through the, uh, through the book. Um, well, John is overcome by all of this. Uh, he falls senseless at the Lord's feet. And by the way, I just want to say... <laughs> That there are people in this world in ages past and present who I would rejoice to see fall senseless before the feet of Jesus. Um, I'm thinking right now of a particular um, talking head or media mogul who's always making these remarks about Christianity and what fools and weaklings Christians are. So this man will stare. He will gape, slack-jawed, his mouth hanging open. And he won't say, I can't believe it, because he can't speak. But furthermore, he'll know with absolute certainty that he is facing the living God. And he will fall senseless at the feet of Jesus. And so will a lot of other people. So will I. But my Lord reached down to lift me up. God knows why. And... 
and, uh, and, I, and gave to me blessed words. Words promised. Do not be afraid. I hope in God's mercy, many enemies of Christ will hear those same blessed words. He raises John. He gives him words to take to the church of Christ, the seven churches, and to us. And, and Jesus did so. And here is his words. Right written down for us in Scripture. And um, we, so we've considered this vision of Christ. And let me conclude with the words that he gives to John in verses 17 to 20. So we're at point B of our text, our message. Um, and reading now, uh, I'll reread uh, 17 and then to the end of the chapter. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as one, uh, as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive and forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, those which are and those which are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands and the seven stars, the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Well, <clears throat> what does he say to John? First, he identifies himself to this terrified, tired-out old man uh, with gentle words of incredible comfort and assurance. Who was this frightening, overwhelming figure? It was Jesus. John knew him. And he says to him familiar words, Fear not. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. Hendrickson writes, The Son of Man tenderly lays his right hand upon John in expression of love and, and the imparting of strength so that the Apostle's drooping, exhausted frame revives and he arises. He's the first and he's the last. He's the beginning or the end or, or as we have it in another place, the Alpha and the Omega, the eternal Son, but tender to his people. Once dead, but delivered up according to his own purposes, according to the eternal counsel of God to purchase the life of his people, to save us from death and judgment through his own death and judgment in our place. Jesus saves. And that's the measure of his love for us, that Jesus, God, came to save us. Read on. He holds the death, uh, the keys of death in Hades. That's what he says in verse 18. I'm the living one. I was dead. Behold, I'm alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. That's good news. <laughs> Jesus holds the key or the power uh, of death and of hell. Blind chance does not control our lives. And it doesn't control anything. 
Um, not, nor, nor does the enemy of our soul, the devil. He's lost. Death has lost. He, my Jesus, has all power and all authority and He holds the keys. He has died and He rose from the grave and death and Hades have nothing over Him whatsoever. And here's the point. That you, who with John have confessed Christ to the world, will be owned by Christ and the world to come. Jesus said, He who confesses me before men, I will confess him before men and angels in the last day. He who confesses me, I will confess him. Well, there's still time. Jesus tarries. His return is delayed for perhaps another day, another week, a month, a year, two years, maybe more, maybe not. But how will it be when you meet with the living God, this all-powerful and all-authoritative, no-nonsense, yes-it's-happening God? Everything else in this book is fulfilled. Why would you doubt that this would be fulfilled? It will be fulfilled. And Christ will come. And when he comes, he's not going to be some sort of mamby-pamby little, hi folks, how are we all doing down here? No. It's not going to be like that at all. He's going to come as a glorious king. And how will it be when you meet with the living God, this powerful God, as he shows us in his own self-revelation? Will, will the Lord Christ raise, uh, lay his hands upon you with words of comfort? Or will he lay a sad, heavy hand uh, upon you as your judge? Because you never really made time for Christ and never gave it a real serious thought. Maybe he never answered the gospel offer. If you're not a Christian, may God the Holy Spirit use these words and especially this powerful description of Christ to scare you, not to death, but to life. So turn to Christ and ask Him to to give you repentance and faith and save you. And if you're a Christian, well, ask for the blessings that God promised as we study the book. Uh, Read on yourself and pray. It'll teach you. And pray for me, please. If you're suffering today uh, in body or spirit, well, take heart. Take heart. We have a great and powerful King. God is able and mighty and most gracious to His people. He knows who you are and He knows where you are. And He is far greater and far more lovely and far more committed to His church and far more terrible than you and I probably will ever know. Let's pray. Lord our God, we we bless you for this passage of Scripture that shows us, as you want us to see you, as very glorious, very powerful, very authoritative, and yet a God of graciousness and a God of love who lays his hands upon his people. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.